Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Andrew Horan and Tom Shanker, author of the new book Age of Danger, keeping America safe in an era of new superpowers, new weapons and new threats. Uh, Andy, Tom, welcome to Bookstack. Terrific to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. And congratulations uh, on the book. So why an age of danger? Well, Andy and I have been talking about these issues for really four or five years, Richard. And we initially began creating a list of what we called ticking time bombs, the things that either people weren't thinking about enough or had been avoiding thinking about. But as time went on, we realized that rather than an endless list of problems, we wanted to look more holistically at the national security situation. And when we realized that problems are coming at us faster and in greater quantity, and especially at a time where our two peer competitors are both nuclear powers that truly could end life as we know it, we just realized that we are not talking about ticking time bombs, but we have entered a new age of danger, unlike anything in our history. And it's a very expensive uh, time bomb to avoid going off as well. I mean, you start the book with this uh, pretty stark figure that American taxpayers will be asked to pay $1.25 trillion to run the national security machine this year. Uh, as I say, that's a pretty spectacular figure. Richard, it is. And we, we did that purposefully because as we look at the problems that we examine in this book and we tell stories through people, the characters that are involved in it, we, we don't begin with the presumption that simply spending more is the right answer. We may come to that conclusion, you know, if it requires more resources, then we should spend them. But what we really want to focus on and what we want our readers to be thinking about is, are we spending the money that's already allocated? Are we doing that wisely? Are we doing that? Is it producing the results that we expect? Tom mentioned, and you mentioned in your question, is the national security machine, that is the parts that produce warning and the parts that produce action, are they, are they producing the kind of results we should expect? And, and what even does that uh, 1.25 trillion pay for specifically? What is exactly the national security machine? Sure. Traditionally, people would think of the Defense Department and the military, the intelligence community and its two dozen organizations. But we also you know, realize that it has to include all of the people who work in areas of concern across, you know, uh, health and data and agriculture. And so we, we really want to expand the machine, the definition of national security so that the machine looks at it in a more holistic manner, especially after 20 years of Zoom-like focus on counterterrorism, Richard. It's time to really have to go from the microscope to the telescope, from Zoom to panorama when we talk about the array of national security risks. Richard, just a little more on that too. You know, we do include the State Department. We do include Homeland Security in that definition. And in the broadest definition, we include the support we provide to veterans because that's an obligation we take on as a country for those that serve. And I mean, if, if you're thinking about this kind of broader definition and a lot of the things that you talk about include cybersecurity, germ warfare and or countering germ warfare and, and so on, is the 1.25 trillion 
actually that much. Um, I mean, it's the kind of valuation that you might have for a company like Apple, for example. Well, as Andy mentioned, we are not arguing that we absolutely need more money. As our government and as our, our voters work through this, they may choose to allocate more money. But we actually think that if the current sum is spent wisely and in a smarter way, it should be sufficient. Because as you say, Richard, that's not too large a sum when it comes to protecting our, our nation from all of these risks. So, I mean, what is the record that the United States has uh, when it comes to using the money to address the kind of critical issues that you're talking about? After all, the, the US has been the world's number one power for the last 80 years or so and, and has done it pretty successfully. Do you think that the United States is in a uniquely dangerous position now? Uh, or is it just another dangerous position that it once again it has to reevaluate? I think there's an argument to say that this may be uniquely dangerous. And let me explain just a bit why. Certainly those of our listeners here know the dangers that came about during the Cold War. We highlight several in the early chapter of the book. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis certainly would be you know, at the very top of that list. And the more that we know about that, the more we know that we became very close to nuclear war. But now, as Tom pointed out, uh, we face two large nuclear powers in China and Russia. We have a nuclear power in North Korea. We have in Iran, uh, a country that seeks to be a nuclear power. You know, you layer on top of that. You mentioned, you know, germs, which is a focus. You layer on that climate. We certainly know sort of the cyber risks. And we count in cyber or what we call digits, uh, the, the growing and the potential challenge associated with AI. We think this is different. Uh, and so in the past, we could have looked at, at some of these pieces. I think when you layer these together, this feels different. And I would argue it feels unique. And there's a point we like to make when we talk to, you know, audiences from the general public and not the national security world. You know, if you recall 9-11, a day that changed things for the United States, for everyone around the world, any death above zero, Richard, is a tragedy. But 9-11, 3,000 people lost their lives. And this nation launched two forever wars, spent trillions of dollars, uh, soldiers killed and wounded, people in the Middle East, the death and destruction of their economies. And that was a 20-year effort that we now realize was really not to battle an existential threat because Al-Qaeda on its best day could never have destroyed the United States. Think about COVID, one million Americans dead, and the number's still rising, and this nation never came together on a war footing, never was an agreement about the threat or how to deal with it. And it's these kinds of threats that make us feel that we're in a new age, unlike the sort of easily defined past decades when national security was the Soviet Union was Cuba, as Andy said, and Iran or North Korea. The threats are just too broad and they're coming at us too fast. It really is something different. Yeah, and you do um, put all of this in context in, in a way that actually I found genuinely fascinating. You show, for example, um, how after the Second World War, there was this rethinking, a reimagining of what the national security state would uh, looked like, and we had um, Frank Costigliano on uh, talking about George Kennan in a in a previous episode. But there wasn't that similar rethink at the end of the Cold War, so that when nine eleven happens, you do get this reimagining, but it's completely uh, dominated by that one experience. So, 
you know, do you think that that's part of the reason that this feels like a, a particularly fragile time now? Because there wasn't that overall strategic rethink that took place when the Cold War came to an end. Richard, I think you're pointing to a, you know, a really important and major theme of this book. And let, let's go backwards for just a moment. You know, at the end of the Second World War, I think the leaders in the United States, there was a genius to this in which they really understood that the United States was going to play a very different role in the world. And they designed the structures and the mechanisms to deal with that, not just in terms of national security questions, but larger issues of trade and economics and sort of built the mechanisms for, you know, the rules-based order that people talk about. It wasn't perfect. And, you know, we know the many problems over the subsequent 70 years, but we haven't had a similar re-examination of how we're going to be organized, not just the United States, but the United States and its allies and partners around the world. There's activity underway. I don't want to suggest no one's thinking about that. Tom and I know these people and know there's hard work underway, but we haven't had the clarity of thought, the clarity of moment that we saw, for example, in the 1947 National Security Act that was, you know, established the modern Defense Department, created the Air Force, established the modern National Security Council system in terms of how the president of the United States was going to be served by key advisors and integrating functions and so forth. We need that again. We need that kind of look today based on the problems we see now, not the problems that we saw then. We mentioned in the book where you just use this as a metaphor that 1947, that had the flavor of the industrial era, you know, the 47 Chevrolet, if you will. And it was interesting. One of our readers of the book, a former deputy national security advisor in the United States said, maybe it's time to put that 47 Chevy in the garage and build the new, perhaps we'll call it the modern Tesla for this era. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy, actually. I mean, thinking about the kinds of things that the United States should be doing, before we even talk about specifics, let's just talk about the two of you for a second. What was it from your different backgrounds that uh, made you come together to write this book? And, and what do you think are the, the different ways in which you've been able to kind of really bounce off each other in, in writing this book? Well, Andy and I first met in the early 2000s. He was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, which is a fancy name for a really smart guy. Andy was basically the Pentagon's top strategist. I had just come from a decade overseas, Central and Eastern Europe, and I was covering the Pentagon for the New York Times. And Andy and I met, and we continued this dialogue ever since then. And I, I think it really is the, the, the perspectives that we bring. You know, I was in Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War. Uh, Andy had all of these high-level Defense Department policy jobs from the end of the Cold War through 9-11 and the reshaping. So we kind of brought a, a yin and a yang, if not a Mutt and Jeff attitude, an outsider and, and an insider. And it's been a very, very complimentary partnership. Yeah, that's an interesting phrase that you use there, insider and outsider. Do, I mean, do you feel that as you were working on the book that each of you in some ways was almost a corrective uh, to the other? I think very much so. You know, it was every chapter in this book represents a deep collaboration. And what we tried to do in writing this is tell stories in a way that we hope are accessible to readers, you know, talking to characters and so forth. You know, one of the things I so admired 
Tom as a reporter when I was still in the government is that when Tom showed up in my office to ask questions, he almost always knew the answer to those questions before he asked them. This is a person who does his homework very, very well. And similarly, you know, I've been uh, trained both in my time in government and my time at uh, the RAND Corporation to be really thinking analytically about issues and to really try to get to the heart of what's driving a particular matter. And I think between the two of us, it really helped us bring clarity. And so when we would sit down with people that and the characters that your listeners are going to meet when they read this book, I think it really allowed us to go deeper and to reveal some of these topics through them because of our different experiences as we were meeting people where they were. And Andy, when we think about the challenges that the United States does face, I mean, perhaps China is the one that is front and center, uh, certainly in terms of the news agenda. Um, what do you make of the way in which debates are moving in Washington around these questions on what to do about China? You know, it's interesting, Richard. I've been involved in this story for a long time. I'll say going back to the early to mid-1990s when I was still in the government. I think then there were two stories on China. There was the story about China entering the global economy. China's entrance into the World Trade Organization, the place where the world's economy and where American companies could do business. You know, there was the thought about this country that had a growing middle class that was going to be part of, you know, of an exciting future. And that was true. Um, there was also the story about China that was generating surplus through its economy and its development that was investing in military capabilities, that was going to assure that it could protect its interests and how those interests might collide with interests of the United States and its partners in various ways. And the national security community was becoming more concerned about that. And those were running on roughly parallel tracks until 2010, 2012 or so. And this is when uh, Xi becomes uh, Chinese Communist Party leader and starts talking in terms of made in China in 2025 and so forth. I think the business community is becoming more alert to that this could be more, you know, consequential, that this is looking more like rivalry, maybe looking more like competition. And at the same time, the national security community is watching China's military modernize in a way that begins to look more threatening and challenging. So those two paths become more like one path, not completely, but you know, those concerns arise. The thing that we really try to highlight in this book is we've been watching for 25 or 30 years, 25 or 30 years ago, there was a sense that time's on our side. We can adjust, we can adapt, but that time's now elapsed. And so the idea that we had 20 years to adjust or adapt, I think nobody in the business community or in the national security community thinks that anymore. The time's upon us now, and now we need to move, and we're finding the system slow and sluggish. And so that's some of the story that we're really trying to tell in this book. And it is curious how uh, so many of the patterns and plays of the, of the Cold War now seem to be returning. Even in recent days, there was the story of the uh, new signals intelligence center potentially on the island of Cuba that the Chinese 
uh, have put there. And while, you know, a, a signals uh, center is very different to nuclear weapons, immediately everyone reaches for the uh, for the historical analogy of the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. So it is almost, and it's one of the points that you make in the book, that it is one of those things that it's as if we don't have a new playbook. We we have to keep going back to that, if I can mix my metaphors, back to that 1947 Chevy that you were talking about before. Oh, it's so right. And I do mean this, I, the pun is intended, but uh, everybody's antenna went up, you know, when they see these actions, right? Not a big shock, I think, to people in the national security community, but it does, you know, it does raise an eyebrow. It does make you wonder how these things are unfolding and what we're doing. I think a big difference, though, Richard, is the Cold War playbook was one in which the economies of the Soviet Union and America and its allies, the West, we'll call it, they were not intertwined. This playbook's more complicated because those economies are intertwined. And so we see some of this that looks very familiar, the Cuba uh, listening post being one and in other elements. And some of this feels unfamiliar. And that's really, you know, part of the rethinking that Tom and I are really calling for when we sat down to write this book. And I guess, Tom, I mean, not everything is about uh, traditional great power rivalry, just as as Andy was saying there. And, and this is one of the things that you make very strongly uh, in the book. I mean, it, I guess the pandemic taught us that uh, we have to be ready for completely unexpected challenges. That's exactly right. You know, and it's not just, you know, germs attacking humans, but Andy and I did a lot of reporting in the American Midwest. And Richard, I can assure you and, and your listeners that the agriculture industry and the academic labs looking at it are deeply concerned about a pandemic level attack on food supplies, both here and around the world. It could be occurring in nature. It could be brought here intentionally by people seeking to do us harm. And we are absolutely unprepared for a whole number of crop blight and animal blight and others. And we, we lump them in this national security age of danger because a, a agricultural food crisis would be just as devastating as a war. Yeah, actually, food scarcity is one of the themes that you run uh, through the book. And, and in many ways, it's actually one of the most surprising and one of the most alarming, it seems to me. That's exactly right. We visited um, Kansas State University, where the president brought a $1.2 billion center called the National Agrobiodefense Facility. And it's where all the level four research and preparation and intelligence gathering they're watching outbreak of crop disease, animal disease around the world and tracking it. And what's so interesting is the university president who brought it there is a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, an Air Force four-star named Richard Myers. And he told us quite honestly that he was reading all of this intelligence coming out of the Al-Qaeda caves in Afghanistan, the safe houses in Pakistan, about how Al-Qaeda was experimenting with crop disease and with animal disease. And he makes the case that if a suicide bomber is happy to strap a vest on himself and blow himself up to kill 30 in a marketplace, what is to keep someone from infecting themselves with Ebola getting on a plane to New York City? And so these sorts of threats are, are real, and there are actual real-world examples. In 1997, a bunch of farmers in New Zealand were upset with the government for not allowing them to use a very virulent uh, hemorrhaging virus to take out the wild rabbit population 
that was decimating their crops. One of them flew to the Czech Republic where this virus was legal but controlled, bought it, put it on a handkerchief, flew back to New Zealand and started a widespread outbreak of a hemorrhaging virus among the wild rabbits. So you might agree with the farmer's motive, but it shows how easily these horrific viruses can travel. And it's also the speed of these kind of things as well. You have a, a great quote towards the end of the book from the former National Security Advisor, Stephen Hadley, uh, who says that today nothing is slow, nothing is predictable. I mean, we were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, earlier, that even in something like that, they had several days where they were able to uh, calibrate themselves without the kind of the press being part and the public being part of the story. That is not a luxury that any policymaker has today when it comes to facing these kind of challenges. That's exactly right. And the challenges are traveling not only at the speed of news, but they're traveling at network speed. I mean, one of the big concerns about artificial intelligence that we raise in, in the book is that as these threats come at us faster, hypersonic weapons traveling several thousand kilometers a minute and able to evade our traditional warning, computer network attacks, we may have to rely on AI to help us defend ourselves. And, you know, Andy likes to use the phrase, these systems should be eyes on, but hands off. But it's almost impossible to keep your eyes on a national security response and a decision that has to be made at network speed. You know, Richard, these kind of examples to really highlight something I think important for your listeners. If there is a succinct summary of American strategy after World War II, it was the idea that we need to make friends and keep threats at a distance. But when we're talking about problems like germs and digits and climate, even drones, the idea of certainly make friends remains very important. But how do you keep this at a distance? And so Steve Hadley's right. You know, it would be a luxury if you could deal with one problem at a time. But things are coming quickly and they're coming in multiples. That's why we really think it's so important we begin to address this in a way that we be alert to the problems and that we have mechanisms in place to deal with them. You know, the American military learned after World War II when it, you know, it uh, took a hiatus in terms of its readiness and then soon found itself in the Korean War and we sent an unready force in the battle. We talk in the book about Task Force Smith and it learned that you have to be ready not tomorrow or the next day. You've got to be ready tonight. And when we're dealing with the kind of problems that we're talking about here, you've got to be ready tonight, not tomorrow or the next day. We've got to build the machinery to do that. And how do you plan for that kind of thing? That if everything is changing so fast, AI is a perfect example of it, that even a year ago, we were talking about AI as our friend. Now you have the president and the British prime minister meeting in the White House, planning how they're going to deal with uh, all of the challenges of, of AI. And we recognize uh, the threats as well as the potentials there. How do you plan? Or on the other hand, is everything actually about planning for the response, being quick on your feet, as we were with something like Operation Warp Speed, for example, uh, during the pandemic? Well, Richard, you're citing Operation Warp Speed as just a perfect example. Andy and I make the case in our conclusion where we do offer some ideas and Operation Warp Speed proved that you could, you know, unfortunately it began late, we were unprepared, but by bringing all the right people together from all across, giving them legal protections, a public-private partnership, the government 
working with the pharmaceutical corporations, we got a vaccine in a year's time, which was almost miraculous. So we want to wed that model with what the military calls joint task forces. The military has practiced for 20 years. One of the good things that came out of the war on terror was that it brought together in a single headquarters, military, intelligence, law enforcement, treasury, all the tools of government needed to fight terrorism. We advocate creating joint interagency task forces to deal with a climate challenge, a food scarcity challenge, a data breach. And even if the challenges coming at us are not the five or six or seven that we identify, if these people are all coming together four times a year, practice identifying requirements and needs, then if an unexpected challenge comes, at least you have a team in place to think about it and mitigate it. And it's not a pickup game. And it, it is a challenge, though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, as you, as you say in the book, we need coherence. There has to be kind of joined up thinking. And you, and you give examples. Stanley McChristoff is a good example of someone who's able to institute reform in a way that is coherent. And yet, on the other hand, one of the lessons of Operation Warp Speed is that it was something that there was a lot of resistance to it. It involved kind of cutting through red tape, vested interests, and so on, and the government being very light on its feet. So, so how do we balance those two? How do we get coherence without it kind of becoming stodgy groupthink and inability to turn on a dime when a major crisis strikes like the pandemic? You know, the coherence is going to come through practice. We tell the stories in other parts of this book about war games. Uh, war games are just a shorthand for saying experiential learning. That is, you put people into an environment in which a crisis or a problem presents itself, and then how do you respond? It's done in a lot of different a lot of different ways, but I think we really want to emphasize this notion of experiential learning. There are connections that have to be drawn across institutions. You have to test those connections. You know, we knew certainly in the days prior to uh, September 11, 2001, that in the United States, the CIA and the FBI couldn't talk to each other. You know, that we, we refer to some of the stories of you know, not quite literally, but it seemed possible that you've got a telephone on one ear and a telephone on the other ear. We can't have that happen. We can't have that communication coming to the White House or to the heads of states among our allies. We have to find out who the responsible parties are, and we have to present them with these challenging situations, scenarios. You present with a scenario and you, you really try to understand how you would deal with those circumstances through this experiential learning. Where are the shortfalls? You use the shortfall from that experience to then try to set the corrections in place. And then you go try it again and again and again. This is what the military talks about when they talk about readiness. We need similar kind of readiness, similar kind of training across, you know, the civilian branches of government that are going to deal with some of the problems like germs, digits storms and so forth. I think this is part of the, of the thinking that we really need to bring to an expanded view of national security in this age of danger. And it also requires putting people in positions of authority, Richard, who have a mindset that the future deserves a seat at the table. Because you can't be stodgy when you have smart people with authorities looking around the corner, looking over the horizon. Um, too much of American national security decision-making is what the military warns of 
the crocodile closest to the canoe. We have to get away from that because we can deal with the crocodile. We know how to do the traditional things, but it's a mindset of looking to the future and anticipating what might be coming. That's the way to, to defeat the stodginess that you so correctly warn of. You know, let me point to something too. Tom and I don't want to leave listeners here thinking everything's broken. It's not. We talked about warp speed. And, you know, I want to say one more thing about that, which is the investments in the technology that, that yielded this outcome in warp speed. That took place a decade or so prior. That was really some of the investment that was coming out of the concern about biological attacks after 9-11. That was in progress. And then we were able to put those pieces together and produce this terrific result. You know, if you look at the support to Ukraine in Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, the machinery was in place. NATO was able to operate in a way that it's that, you know, the warning was there. The intelligence was used for very good purpose. The world was alerted to what Russia was about to do. And then when Russia attacked the, the response mechanism, what we call the action machine, the action machine moved into, into, into a response and, and has done, by our measure, a very good job. We could all look at, at ways in which this might have been faster or could have been improved, but by and large, a very good job. We'd like to see the machinery for some of these other problems have that kind of alertness and responsiveness as, as these problems are emerging. So I think we take a certain hope in the sense that we can see where uh, some problems are being dealt with in a reasonable and a coherent way. We want to build the machinery for some of these other problems to do just the same. And is there a, a political consensus that's possible to be built uh, to do that? I mean, one of the things that uh, I think sometimes doesn't get enough attention uh, in Washington, it seems to me, is, is actually how much consensus there really is in terms of foreign policy and national security issues, that in many ways, the differences between the Trump administration and the Biden administration uh, in terms of, of those things are actually quite minimal, it seems to me. And yet we have this kind of somewhat, well, let's understate it, this somewhat difficult political environment uh, in which parties find it difficult to work together. I just wonder, how do we move from recognizing that we need a rethink to actually being able to do it in a way, for example, that Truman and Vandenberg were able to do it after the Second World War, Republicans and, uh, and Democrats working together? Richard, terrific question. And I think from our experience, Tom and I working in this community now for a long time, if we get away from the headline and we get outside of the cameras, outside the purview of the cameras, there are serious people working on this. And I think there is a reason for hope and that we can begin to move forward and, and regain coherence. I think we have to have real attention to real problems. And this isn't just attention in terms of the federal bureaucracy. It's not just attention in terms of the U.S. Congress taking action. I think it's going to have to be step by step in which the institutions that are responsible for, again, in our terminology of watching the problems that are emerging, that is the warning or the warning machine, and then building coherent response mechanisms, what we call the action machine. We're going to have to identify what those pieces are. 
in some cases, we'll need legislation that will provide authorities. Tom should talk in a moment here about drones, because that's one that does worry us. You know, we need to have the pieces built. We need to have the authorities in place. And then we need to let talented people give them a chance to go do their jobs. And that's one of the reasons, Richard, that we really appreciate the opportunity here to talk to your, your listeners, because as, you, as Andy and you have both said, inside Washington, all you see is polarization and paralysis. And, and these questions are so important for all of the American people to be involved in this discussion. And it really is a time to move beyond the zero-sum game of electoral politics and look at how we can come together, left, right, center, Democrat, Republican. Andy and I are apolitical. We're nonpartisan. We're not advocating for any candidate or any party. All we're advocating for is the American people to put officials in office who care about all of our nation and keeping all of us safe. And there are decades of history, as you both cited, when we did that very, very well. And we can return to an era where we're not broken and we're not paralyzed. So the book is Age of Danger, Keeping America Safe in an Era of New Superpowers, New Weapons and New Threats. It's written by my guests, Andrew Hone and Tom Shanker, and published by Hachette Books. Uh, but for now, Andy, Tom, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It was a real honor. Thanks so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>